The title of this message, if you like, title is Church People. Um, seeing themselves on TV at a sporting event can do some strange things to otherwise normal people because the camera gets on them and, hey, that's me! And they start waving and they start jumping around crazily. And, um, and then many people even go to a game with the hope of being seen. So they, um, they paint their faces or they, they put on some crazy outfit uh, or have some sign hoping that somebody will, will notice them. And then my favorite are the guys where it's snowing, it's minus five, minus 20 wind chill, and you have seven guys with their shirts off uh, and their chests painted uh, spelling out cowboys. <laughs> and um, giving the alcohol consumption, who knows what it would spell by the end of the game. When we read Ephesians, we're meant to see ourselves. When we read Ephesians, we're meant to say, that's us. We're, we're in the picture. But, but not to call attention to ourselves, woohoo, look at me. But to call attention to God and his purposes and our part in those purposes. Uh, the New Bible Dictionary says, the letter in its form less restricted by particular controversial or pastoral needs than any other New Testament letter stands as a wonderful declaration of the eternal purpose of God in Christ, wrought out in his church, and the practical consequences of that purpose. John Stott just simply says, Ephesians is the gospel of the church. So the point is that as we see ourselves, that we would freshly commit ourselves in faith uh, to God's eternal purposes as his people, as, as the church. Now, I'm actually questioning my sanity in trying to do this, but what I want to do is just walk through the entire uh, epistle of Ephesians uh, this morning. Uh, John said, when I came up here, you can have as much time as you want, so... Uh, and then we're going to just stop occasionally and, and take a look at some things uh, more deeply. And, and hopefully, they're, they're, we're, we're going to do it in a way that refreshes our vision, refreshes our faith, and refreshes our commitment to this glorious thing to get to be church people. So, Father... Uh, I do pray. I thank you for uh, this church. I thank you all they uh, mean to this area and to Sovereign Grace. But uh, Holy Spirit, we, we need you this morning. I, I pray that um, we would be refreshed. Um, we, 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 the, the, our delights, our understanding of, uh, God, your, your vision, your purpose for the church um, the faith that we can have because of that and, and the call that we have to be committed. So, uh, Holy Spirit, you, you can do that. Refresh delights this morning, I pray. And uh, I need your help. I need your strength because I am weak. And uh, I ask that you would come and just give me grace 
to speak to and bless your precious people in Jesus' name. Amen. So three very simple points. The first one, God's vision for the church. Uh, The primary reason to love and be committed to Redemption Hill Church is because God loves and is committed to uh, Redemption Hill Church. And, And he has anointed this church, along with other churches in the areas, but this church, he has ordained this church to be a primary means for fulfilling his purpose to reach Round Rock and to reach Austin, which is becoming uh, an increasingly uh, important city. Therefore, our understanding of the church, uh, or anything for that matter, it always needs to start with God, not with man. It always needs to start with God, not with us. So, what, what is God up to? What, what is God talking about here in this gospel of the church? Um, a simple answer to that, which I think would take a lifetime for us to explore, uh, it's actually this, that God is gathering a people for his glory. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, the story of the Bible is simply that. God is gathering a people for his glory. And Ephesians helps us to understand exactly how it is that God's doing that. Um, First of all, we see that this people, the church, was, was conceived and formed in eternity past that this has been part of God's eternal plan from the the very beginning. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before creation, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then he, he called and redeemed and revealed that plan in history. In other words, God worked his plan, which should be of no surprise to us. The gospel is about purchasing a people for his his glory. That's what Ephesians 1, 7 says. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, there is an inseparable link between the gospel and the church. We, we cannot be rightly gospel-centered, and we want to be gospel-centered, without also being church-centered. Because those two things are, are, are linked uh, together. That's what chapter 2 of Ephesians uh, really elaborates on. Uh, the, the only people that God had to choose from to gather people for his glory were sinners who were uh, dead in their sins, subject to God's justified wrath. But God, even when we were dead, made us alive. Uh, But that's just the beginning of the story. Because God's plan wasn't just to have a whole bunch of saved individuals. God's plan was to have uh, a people. And so in 11 uh, through 22 of chapter 2, don't miss that the first word of chapter 11 there is, therefore. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So what, what I don't want you to miss is this, that Paul treats separation from a people just as seriously 
as he treats our condition of deadness. In fact, it, 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 we might even say because of the way Paul structures chapter 2 that the reason God made dead people alive is so that he could then join them together uh, with uh, other people. So th this gospel isn't simply about individuals. The gospel is about a people. The gospel is about his, his church. And so conceived and formed in eternity past, called, redeemed, and revealed in history, and then preserved and perfected for eternity future. So in verses 13 through 14, uh, we find that these people, the church, God's people, have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that we will uh, acquire possession of this inheritance uh, and, and, until, until the day comes. Now, that's going to be really important throughout church history and today, because being a part of a church isn't easy, is it? Um, we're going to see in chapter 6, actually, that the devil is actively opposing the church. God, uh, the devil hates God, the devil hates God's people, and the devil hates God's church. And he is actively opposing it and doing everything he can to destroy individual Christians, but also to destroy churches. Um, imagine, imagine the persecuted church throughout history. Or imagine a, a church that's struggling, because every church struggles at some time or another, or individual Christians persecuted or, 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 or struggling, and at times thinking, are we going to make it? Or, or is this all worth it? Uh, and then the, the, the Holy Spirit comes and he, and he speaks, and he says, no, 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 you're sealed. I guarantee you're going to make it to the end. I guarantee you're going to receive that inheritance that God has intended for you. The church is Jesus dearly loved. Uh, that's the bride analogy of chapter 5. I, I think, and rightly so, we so teach on chapter 5 about marriage that sometimes we can miss. No, no, it's primarily about Jesus and the church. It's about Jesus' love for the, for the church. So in Ephesians 5.25, where Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that self-sacrificing love uh, of the cross. And it, it's, Paul, Paul emphasizes this love because it's going to be critical to the spiritual strength of God's people, the spiritual strength of the church. So in Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, he prays that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And brothers and sisters, that's a spiritual strength that we're going to need every ounce of because, fifthly, uh, the church is called to represent Christ on earth. We're, we're his body. Um, Paul prayed uh, in Ephesians 1, 18 through 19, that we, that you, the church, may know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us 
who believe. And he explains why he prayed in that way in 1, 22 and 23. Because he put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him as the head over things to the church, where the NIF says, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, Jesus' reign is exercised on behalf of the church uh, for our good so that we can represent him uh, here on the earth. Um, how does Jesus speak today? Well, he speaks through us. How, how does Jesus go today? He goes through us. How does Jesus touch today? He touches uh, through us, his body. And, and, and he does all of that to fulfill God's purpose that he states in Ephesians 1.10 earlier, that he says it's the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. Sin brought disintegration into the world. When sin came, everything fell apart. Uh, creation groans, we groan. Sin brought disintegration. God's plan is to bring reintegration, to bring integrity, to make everything whole once again in Jesus, to unite all things uh, in Jesus. God, God is moving all of history to uh, unite everything that fell apart because uh, of, of sin. And the stunning reality is, how's he going to do? Well, he's doing that through his church. He's doing that through us. Uh, John Calvin said so simply, it is the task of the visible church to make the invisible reign of Christ visible to the world. It is the task of the visible church to make the invisible reign of Christ visible to the world. And then lastly, on God's vision, it's, it's all for, the, for God's praise, for the praise of God's glory. Uh, it's, it's actually the dominant note of the epistle. Um, I've actually, um, at Crossway, we've done a series on Ephesians three times. Uh, I've taught this every year at Pastors College because I think it's, it's so important. Uh, but, but the first series that we ever did, uh, I named this, It's Not About Me. So many people, sadly, approach church selfishly. Like, well, you know, what, what can this church do for me? And by the way, ch the churches do want to serve that are, that are people are apart. That, that's, that's, that's not the point. It's uh, that the, the people come just to be served or, or approach the church selfishly. It's why you see so much church hopping and church shopping. Uh, it's, it's why you see so many people that just bolt or bail on a church if things start to get difficult or things uh, start to go wrong uh, in a local church. Rather than saying, my, my primary purpose here is God's glory. My primary purpose here is, is how can I serve? How can I be part of a people so that we can glorify God? So, 1-1, one, one, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1-6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us. 1-11, that we might be for the praise of his glory. 1-14, the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. And then he ends the first part of Ephesians in 3-21, to him be glory in the church 
in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a, what a vision till Jesus comes to unite all things. Also, take particular note of 221 where Paul writes, in the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, uh, why, does, why does Paul reference the Old Testament temple here? Here's the reason. The Old Testament temple was the place where God's glory was manifest. And the point he is trying to make is now the church of Jesus Christ is the place where God's glory is manifest. N not in one building in one city, but in many local churches throughout the world, just like, just like this one, that we're, we're being built into this holy temple to manifest God's glory in the world. A.T. Lincoln said, the church is the arena where the results of Christ's peacemaking are to be seen. The peace gained at the cross of Christ's death and realized in the church is to be preserved, demonstrated, and proclaimed by the church in the world. John Piper said it this way, God's deepest purpose for the world is to fill it with reverberations of his glory in the lives of a new humanity ransomed from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. That's why you're here this morning. That's, that's God's vision for the church. And one of the things I love about that vision is uh, it's intended to inspire faith for the church. Uh, all of us have heard these uh, kind of stories about how someone was, was told uh, that something couldn't be or couldn't be done or they couldn't be something, but somebody else came along and, and, he, and he said to them, uh, if you just work hard enough and want it bad enough, um, you can do it. And so that person throws themselves into the task of working hard and wanting it so badly. And then in the end, they find out it really couldn't be done after all. The church isn't anything that we can do because we work really hard and want it really badly. So here's the question, just how are we gonna be able to pull that off? Um, how are we gonna be able to fulfill uh, that vision? You know, body, temple, glory. Does God realize who he's dealing with here? Does God realize how insufficient we are for the task? How we're just ordinary people. We're school teachers. We're plumbers. We're, we're high school students. How are, how are we going to make this thing work? Uh, A.T. Lincoln, I, I think, has a wonderful uh, understated quote. He says, the writer senses that if the church is going to become in history an effective preview of God's purposes for the end of history, then God is going to have to help us in a big way. Can anyone say amen to that? Um, in particular, Paul prays and, and answers that question for us. He prays that we might know the love of God and the power of God towards the church, his people. So in Ephesians 1.9, he prays that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. In 3.16, he prays that according to the riches of glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in, in, in your inner being. Um, sadly, a lot of people are really down on and discouraged about the church. But 
when we read these prayers and, and they're inspired prayers, so we know that the answer to these prayers is going to be yes, that we will be strengthened and we will know that love, that, that Jesus has provided everything that the church needs to um, represent him as his body, to be the fullness of him who fills all things in all, to overcome all opposition and to finally uh, make it to the end. But in that faith then, it, it demands commitment to the church, which is our last point. Um, we, we live in a society that really takes commitment so lightly. And a sad example of that is how lightly many professing Christians take commitment to a local church. Uh, the Quaker, Elton Truebred, said this, uh, perhaps the greatest single weakness of the contemporary Christian church is that millions of supported members are not really involved. John Stott said, if the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? If we, like Paul, keep before us the vision of God's new society as his family, his dwelling place, his instrument in the world, then we shall constantly be seeking to make our church's worship more authentic, its fellowship more caring, and its outreach more compassionate. In other words, like Paul again, we shall be ready to pray, to work, and if necessary, for suffer in order to turn that vision into a reality. Uh, Ephesians, like many of Paul's epistles, can be broken up into two parts. In chapters 1 and 3, he's outlining this theology of the church. He, 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 he unpacks the theology of the church. Uh, but then in the second part, in chapters 4 through 6, he's outlining what, what are the practical implications of those realities of God's, of God's vision for the church. And so he begins chapter 4, verse 1, this way. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he emphasizes two things in what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He emphasizes unity and he emphasizes purity. First of all, he emphasizes unity. And, and there, it's not just avoiding disunity, although that's certainly part of it, but, it, but it's building unity by, by being a member, by attending, by, by serving, by loving. And unity is important because it, it's, it's, it's the great representative of his reconciling power that we read about in Ephesians chapter 2 where we were separated, Jews and Gentiles who hated each other. You know, we live in a country where there's so much talk about division and divisiveness and how can people possibly get along? And the church actually has the answer to that. They can get along in, in, in Christ. But, but here's, here's, here's the tragedy. When, when churches aren't united, when they're fighting, when they're, when they're divided, this is what it says, the gospel doesn't work. This whole gospel thing that you all talk about doesn't work. It doesn't reconcile. There's no reconciling power in the gospel. Look at how these churches 
fight and split and hate one another and gossip about one another online and it couldn't be more serious. Same thing for purity. Um, that, that the gospel makes us a dramatically different people. Uh, that, that we are to represent the life-changing power of the gospel that's, that's spoken about in, um, in chapter two, earlier in, in chapter two, in both our personal conduct but also in our societal conduct. That's why Paul talks about marriage and child rearing and, and work. Uh, there are social interactions. But again, the same thing is true. When, when, when God sees, when, when, the, when the world sees um, Christians who are just living unholy lives, you know, no different from the world, uh, when their divorce rate is the same, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it says the gospel doesn't work. Oh, sure, you claim the gospel makes us, takes us from being dead to alive and transforms that, that there's life-changing power, but you're no different than me. It couldn't be more serious that, that the church actually represent what Christ has called us to, to represent to, to the world in this, in this way, and he's given the power to do. So Paul has laid out for us the highest imaginable vision for the church, to display God's glory, his grace, his power, his wisdom, and his love through the church, in the world, and in heavenly realms even throughout all generations forever and ever. I think the irony to that vision is simply this. The temptation is for us to think, what great and glorious thing do we need to do? What spectacular thing do we need to do while most of everything that we talked about here, it just happens in the mundane, day-to-day -day realities of church life. Isn't that an amazing thing? But it's an irony that can sometimes very easily trip us up, can it? Uh, our lives get busy, and the church is mostly routine, uh, sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's boring. Uh, it's seldom spectacular. And it's so easy then to start slipping in our commitment um, to it, failing to realize that it is actually the very day-to-day -day faithfulness of God's people, living a life worthy of this calling together that in the end gloriously displays God's life-changing power and God's uh, reconciling power that we have in the gospel. Faithfulness just simply to be there, uh, to participate on Sunday mornings and in, in your small groups, uh, faithfulness to fellowship and care for others, faithfulness to grow yourself and to help other people grow, uh, faithfulness to maintain unity, Faithfulness to serve, faithfulness to give, to sacrifice, to witness. Just those day-to-day -day faithfulnesses. Or what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow and builds itself up in, in love. See, every, every one of you, no matter how long you've been a Christian or how short you've been a Christian, uh, every one of you, um, has gifts that God has given to you 
to, to build up this church, to be a part of this church, to, to, to fulfill God's vision uh, for, for this church. And your calling is simply just to be faithful uh, in that. Kevin DeYoung says, in all the smallness and sameness, God works. Life is usually pretty ordinary, just like following Jesus most days. Daily discipleship is not a new revolution each morning or an agent of global transformation every evening. It's long obedience in the same direction. Uh, let me end with a little bit of a personal testimony story. I think, I think most people when I, I, I wasn't saved until I was 28 years old. I think most people would have described me as a likable loser with the emphasis on the loser. Um, and maybe everybody didn't think I was likable. And my highest goal in life was just to have a fun and easy life. Like if I could just not have many troubles and just have fun, then that was it, man. I'd, I'd reached what I had hoped for all my life. And then, uh, amazingly, and I've never gotten over this, uh, when I was 28 years old, I, I got saved by what I say is reading a fake Bible, uh, a, a paraphrase. And uh, uh, my wife had witnessed to me and said, you must be born again. And I, I got to John chapter three and I read those words, you must be born again. And what I now know is God's electing grace, I was. And um, because I didn't own a Bible, I thought, well, I'm a Christian, they need a Bible. So we went to a Christian bookstore. And uh, I, first of all, I had no idea, like, there's all these books that, like, this is crazy. And that there are all these different kinds of Bibles that, uh, so I just picked out the one that looked the best. Uh, turned out to be a New American Standard, which I'm very grateful for. But then I said, well, I'm going to buy these Christian books. So I bought two books. Uh, I bought uh, Jerry Bridges' The Pursuit of Holiness, only because I, I, I was a runner in those days, and it had a picture of a runner on the front. So, and, uh, and then... Uh, I bought a book by a man named Arthur Wallace. I don't even know why I picked it out. I, I, God's providence, but uh, called The Radical Christian. And uh, in that book, he had a quote that really changed my life. And that quote was this, if any man would be a success in life, when he's talking about success, he's not talking about success from a world's perspective. He's talking about success from, in God's eyes. That if anyone would, would maybe to paraphrase, have God pleased with his life for the dream. If anyone be a success in life, find out what God is doing and throw yourself into it wholeheartedly. And by God's grace, somehow, all those years ago, I found out what God was doing was the local church. And ever since that day, I have had zero regrets about throwing myself into that wholeheartedly. Um, I'll let God judge what my success is. Um, but one of the reasons I so love Ephesians is that, is that very thing, because it defines for us what God is doing in this world, what God is doing in individual Christians' lives, um, what, what it really means to live a life successful in God's eyes, to stand before him in the end and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's, it's, it's this. It's what we're doing today. It's what we're doing throughout the week. It's, it's, it's the church. So 
my prayer is and my thanks is that we would all always throw ourselves into this wholeheartedly. Father, I, I, I thank you for this book. I thank you for a gospel of the church that so lays out and outlines for us this glorious vision you have and how we can be a part of it. Um, I pray that you would just, well, first I thank you. I thank you for many in this church that represent this, but I pray that you would just continue to refresh them in this glorious vision, refresh their faith because things aren't always easy, and refresh their commitment. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.